Let's open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 1. Every gospel has a purpose and a target audience that the writer is really focusing on. John is writing really in response to a heresy that had grown up in the early church called Gnosticism. Gnosticism coming from gnosis or to know would be the fact that, basically it it, it summed up, that the spiritual is good and the flesh is bad. And if we just focus, focus so much on the spiritual, then it really won't matter what we do with our flesh. So it had deteriorated into such a a travesty that uh, there was this secret knowledge that only a few people had. And because they had, they thought this secret knowledge about what God was all about, that whatever they did in their earthly bodies didn't matter. So they would go out and really fill their lives with sin and all the things of the flesh. But because they were focused upon this secret knowledge in the spirit, uh, it really didn't matter. I mean, isn't that a good excuse? I mean, I can go out and sin all I want, but I've got my head focused on the secret knowledge of God, so the flesh doesn't matter. Well, John is really uh, addressing this issue, and he talks about, uh, the way he addresses it is by dealing with the person of Jesus. So if you have someone who comes to you and says, you know, I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know who God is. You say, well, why don't you read the Gospel of John? You go and you read it, and you read it, and you read it, and when you figure out who Jesus is, you come back and tell me. Because if you read the Gospel of John, you will figure out, according to the power of the Spirit, who Jesus is. All right, so let's pray. Lord, we come to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we desire to know what your word is, to understand it. Send your Spirit today upon us, Lord, that we might have eyes that are open and hearts that are ready to receive what it is that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the song we just sang, What Child Is This? That's the question. What child is this? And that's what many people ask about this time. Whether, whether they're singing the song or not, they will say, okay, this is about Christmas. Well, we've kind of done away with the Christmas focus, and now it's uh, happy holidays. And what we decided in Sunday school, it was um, happy Fill in the blank, was that what it was? <laughs> Happy, just fill in the blank. Whatever you want to put in there and celebrate, good for you. Well, that's not what we're about here. We're about the celebration of the answer to the question, what child is this? And that is Jesus Christ. Now, if you look through Scripture, we won't start in John. We'll get to John in a minute, so keep your Bible there. Uh, you look around to different places and you get an answer to this question, what child is this? Romans chapter 1 sees the birth of Christ as the time that the word of the Old Testament prophets came to pass. Philippians chapter 2 sees uh, Christmas as the time when the son leaves the right hand of the father, takes on the form of a man, humbling himself and coming into this world. Hebrews chapter 2 sees it as the time when Satan is going to be destroyed. It says his enemies shall be made a footstool. And then again in Hebrews chapter 10 sees Christmas as the great event which God provides the sacrificial offering as atonement 
for our sin. 1 John chapter 4 talks about Christmas as being the birth of the Savior of the world. Timothy chapter 1 says Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul adds, and I am the chief of sinners. Now, most of us, when we want to know about what child is this, the answer to that, we look at the Gospels. Traditionally, Matthew and Luke, and each one is written to a particular audience. One, in in general, the early chapters, has the genealogy of Joseph, and the other has the genealogy of Mary, uh, because those were very important to trace back the lineage of Jesus. And they both give us a just a bunch of historic detail. We've got the shepherds and the angels, Mary and Joseph, and the wise men and the manger, the Christ child, Bethlehem. Uh, we've got all that. It's the practical stuff, the nuts and bolts to the answer of what child is this. But today we've turned to John to give his unique view and his unique account of the narrative of the birth of Christ. And as I say that, you will find that there is no narrative of the birth of Christ. There is only a narrative of Christ. Listen as I read the inspired word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were not born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth." This is God's inspired word, and it is for us today. And this is the narrative of Jesus, in a sense, John's version of the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. There are no angels, no shepherds. All we have is a a mention of John the Baptist. None of those traditional items that we associate with Christmas. But this is the story behind the scenes. This isn't just the story where the wise men leave and and leave their own country and the announcement to the shepherds. This is the eternal story of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. Uh, The Greek says, before the beginning began was the word. But that doesn't translate very well into English. So we just say, in the beginning was the word. Now the question might be raised, when was the beginning? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) When was the beginning? When you look at an eternal and infinite being, when was the beginning for our Heavenly Father? When was the beginning for the Son? When was the beginning for the Spirit? Beginning is there for our benefit. 
It does not describe that they had a beginning because they are eternal and infinite. They never had a beginning. Christ has always been. There was perfect unity in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It is only because the Father decided out of his good and perfect will and for his own glory to create anything else. There was not any need for us. There was not any need for this world. Can you imagine? The perfect, righteous, holy God who has everything, all-powerful, all-knowing, all wise, all righteous, everything. He says, you know, I need company. The perfect and holy and righteous son and the perfect and holy righteous spirit are not enough. I want to create Randy Jenkins for company. Yeah. Okay. That, that's not what God does. He wasn't as if he was lonely and, and sought our company. He created us for his glory. And in fact, what's it says? All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. If you read the first chapter of Colossians, you get the same thing. All things that have been created have come by and through him. That is Jesus Christ, or as John says, the word. All things came into being through the word. So we find first that he is eternal. Secondly, he tells us that he was with God. Not only was he with God, but he is God. But yet Paul says he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. First Philippians chapter 2. The Father and the Son are equal, but yet the Son is in perfect submission to the will of the Father. To the will of the Father. Now why does John choose the word word? Or logos. Now, many of us have heard that word. That's the Greek form of the, uh, of, I keep saying the word word. Um, word equals lo- logos is Greek word for word. I got too many words. Okay. Uh, but you, I hope you understand, you, got, you, you see through my mud and you got that. Okay. Well, why did he use that? Because it's a point of identification for both Jews and Greeks. It's not as if he came up with this on his own and said, you know what, I'm going to call Jesus Christ something different and something special. This understanding of the word was already in common use. Now it goes back in the Old Testament. Let's look at first at the Old Testament. The word, that is how the Jews understood God, because he spoke. Okay, In creation, he spoke and it came into being. It wasn't as if God, I mean, God could have and things would have come into being. He could have simply thought and they would have come into being. He spoke, let there be light, and there was. Let the day be divided into day and to night. Let the waters be divided. He spoke these things. When he came to them, he spoke to Moses. Okay, This is how they understood God, by his word. Okay, So this was a common theme in Jewish life. If you want to see God revealed in his ultimate form, then John says you will see him revealed in the ultimate form of the Word. That is Jesus the Christ, the Word of God. Now, in classic Greek, which would be the Gentiles, in classic Greek, the concept of the Logos goes back a long time. And we see in historic Greek writing, um, I'll quote Philo here, he says, the power of creation the tiller by which God stirs all things, the intermediary between the word, the world and God, the priest which sets the soul before God. So the Greeks or the Gentiles knew about this logos or this word long before Christ was born and that John used the term to describe Jesus. 
So John gives the Jews and the Greeks the clarification they needed to see what they had been talking about for generations. Look, Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. He's the one that you've been looking for. He is the word that you have been talking about for generations and generations. And here he is. Before the beginning began, he was there. And now he has come into this world in the flesh. In the flesh. He tells the Greeks that the controlling power they thought was beyond their senses, that was beyond anything they could understand, has come to earth. And that is Jesus Christ. So John goes on to say that this word in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So let's look at the two words that John uses here, life and light. Life is kind of a bookend for John. Verse 4, he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in John chapter 20, if you want to turn back to there, the very end of chapter 20 in the Gospel of John, we see he uses this term life again. And the whole purpose of his gospel is laid out for us here in these two verses. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now we think that the gospels are often looked upon as histories, uh, that they detail all of what Jesus did. Well, they don't detail all of what Jesus did, because it's very clear here. Verse 30, many other signs, therefore, Jesus all performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, these specific ones have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John says, I've written this so that you can have life. I've taught you about his miracles so that you may have life, so that you may not die in your sin. Life occurs more than 35 times in the Gospel of John. So first, Christ gives life to all things. He is the one through whom God has created, the one who spoke things into existence. And it is through Christ that we actually have our existence, our life. Remember that God breathed life into man, and that man was made in the image and likeness of our Heavenly Father. Secondly, the word life also refers to spiritual life, the life that only comes through Jesus Christ. Now, why do we need life in Christ? Aren't we already alive? Oh, Let's look at Ephesians for for that answer. Ephesians chapter 2. Remember those little go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, those little section of epistles by Paul. Why do we need life? Aren't we born? Did I come from my mother? Yes, born. Didn't you give birth to children, ladies? Yes, yes, you did. Aren't you father's men? Well, yes. Don't we have life? Yes. But unfortunately, we are dead. And that's a strange oxymoron there. How can we be alive, but yet we are dead? Ephesians chapter 2, Paul answers this question for us. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses, trespasses and sins. You were alive, but because of your sin, you were dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 
That's how Paul's audience used to be. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Dead in your trespasses. Not as if you could help God in any fashion. Not as if you were out really looking for God. Not until he comes and grabs you and breathes life into you do you have life. Now we think this is great life. I have a great life. You know, I have everything that I ever wanted in life. Wonderful family. I've got, you know, two cars and a dog and life is good. Without Christ, you're dead. You just don't know it. And not until the Spirit comes and opens your eyes do you understand how dead you were outside of Christ. And it is God who comes and breathes life into us. He breathes life into us. Now, let's look at the other term, light. John says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus also says, I am the light of the world. Without light in our world, there's no confidence, there's no reality, there's no growth. When light comes, we are able to see what is rightly in front of us. Okay? You walk into a room with no light, and what do you do? You immediately stay, stop because you don't know what's out there. Then you begin to feel. Maybe if uh, your spouse travels a lot, you have a tendency to rearrange the furniture. So they come home from a long flight, and it's dark, and they don't want to turn the lights on and wake you up. And you've rearranged the furniture, and you hear boom, boom, and bumping into things. Okay? In the darkness, we're tentative. In fact, in the darkness, we can even be paralyzed. Because we can't see where it is that we're going. Hearts that are darkened are paralyzed. They do not know where they're going. They do not see the truth. It is not until the light of Jesus Christ is shined in their life that they can understand. And you know what? When it's really dark, how much light does it take to you to find your way? Sometimes just a little bit. Sometimes just a little bit. And you can find your way. Now, Christ shines this light. The light cannot, darkness cannot overcome the light. Literally, it says, the darkness cannot understand the light. In other places, we find the question, can a leopard change his spots? No, a leopard can't change his spots. Can someone who is dead make themselves alive? No, that is an impossibility. It is the work of God that does it. It takes the light of Christ to shine into our life before our eyes are open and we see how much we desperately needed salvation. Now, we'll skip over a big portion in John chapter 1 and go to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That is Emmanuel, God with us. We hear that a lot at this time of year. He dwelled among us. Literally, it means he pitched his tent among us. If we go back and search out how that word was used in the Old Testament, we find that when the uh, Israelites were in the desert, God they, had the, they built that tabernacle. It was a tent, and God dwelt there. He literally pitched his tent among his people. And there in the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory came and dwelt and represented the presence of our Heavenly Father. But the Word of God, 
Jesus Christ, the one born of a virgin in Bethlehem, placed in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. He is, as Hebrews chapter 1 says, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John is telling us here in the first chapter that the word became flesh. No longer was there a representation of God's glory and of God's presence with his people. There was the reality of God's presence with his people, and it was the word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is God's glory in this world. He has been made flesh, and he is full of grace and truth. All right. I want you to get more than the greatest theological truth out of this, okay? When we talk about eternal things and eternity and the word of God coming and how the Greeks and the Jews understood that, that's great. But what's the practical aspect of this? Okay, the nuts and bolts we can find in Matthew and Luke. What are the nuts and bolts that we gather here out of this theological treatise that John gives us? Let me try to give it to you this way. Uh, A few years ago, there's a very prominent... Uh, politician in Washington, he was asked to come and speak to a group of uh, college-age leaders uh, about ethics and morals. And he gave this great speech about, um, you know, how it is that we should live in this world, and especially in the, in the political realm and in government and how ethical we need to be. And uh, when he was done, there was a time for questions. And this one young man stood up and he said, upon what base do you build your values? That's a good question. I mean, it's a valid question. If you're going to say we should or shouldn't do these things, why do you say we should or shouldn't do those things? And the speaker, this highly respected government leader, kind of put his head down and he said, I don't know. He said, I don't know. That's like giving a speech for 30 minutes on why you shouldn't steal and and that you shouldn't steal. And then they ask you why. And he says, well, I don't know why you shouldn't. You just shouldn't. Because there was no base there, no no eternal truth that he could stand on and reason from for his points. He had nothing to base his ethics on other than his own changing point of view. So there are plenty of people out there who want reasons for life. They want reasons to have hope. They want reasons to live for something that's greater than themselves. They want reasons to care for others. They want reasons for their existence. They desperately want to believe in a God who makes himself known, a God who is real, a God who cares about them. When they lay at night by themselves in their bed, they they quiet out everything else. They know there is something missing from their life. But they just cannot bring themselves to say it is the God who has created everything. It is the God who has come in the form of a man into this world. That is what I am missing. They seek after everything in the world, but yet they can't find satisfaction. We don't have to look anyplace else than a newspaper the last two weeks. We've got a man who plays golf for a living. How many of us would love that? Okay, He married a Swedish bikini model. He's got two wonderful kids. He never has another financial worry in his entire life. But yet he is not satisfied. And he seeks after those things which simply destroy all that he has built, all that he has come to enjoy. He just throws it all away with both hands. 
Why? Because he has never dealt with the question, what child is this? He has never been face-to-face with that and come to the reality that the child is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, God who has come into this world full of grace and truth. See, what child is this? See, the child born in Bethlehem is none other than the living God that has come to declare himself. In Jesus Christ, the Word, the unknowable becomes knowable. The invisible becomes visible. The transcendent, intimate, right here, living in our hearts. The untouchable becomes touchable. The unreachable becomes embraceable for us. See, this is a God who is never a stranger to a heart that is made alive in Christ. This is the Christmas story according to John. Let's pray. Lord, we know your word is true. We stand on it. We stand in it. We live in it. We're not perfect, but yet we know it is true. There's a world out there, Lord, seeking for meaning, seeking for a reason for their existence, seeking for something that is beyond themselves, but they just don't know what it is. Seeking for a reason to make the choices that they make other than, well, because it's right for me. Right for me carries really no authority, holds no water, carries no weight at all. The gospel says that your son, the exact likeness and representation, the exact glory, the radiance of your glory, left your side, was born into this world, the form of a man. Why would you do this? Why would you send your son to the likes of us? We in our own humanness have no answer for that because we're not worth it. But yet you have laid it out for us. We are your creation. We are your children and you call us by name. You breathe life into us when we were dead in our trespasses. You create in us clean hearts. You have made us for your glory, and now you are making us right before you that we may give you glory in all that we do. Lord, you have brought us here that we might hear this and we might live in this truth. Fix in our minds, Lord, that Christ came into this world for us, that in all that we do, in all that we say, it might be clearly evident of this love that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our carol is 178, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Let's stand as we sing 178. 